When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 96th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is tackling adversity through empathy. I'm joined by Gotham Pelipa. He is the author of Leading with Empathy, Understanding the Needs of Today's Workforce. The publisher is John Wiley and Sons. Gotham is the founder of Transformity and executive advisor at Vimware. He was born in Bangalore, India. His PhD is from the University of Texas, Arlington. Welcome to the show, Gotham. Thank you for having me, Dan. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, so let's jump right in. What's the uh, book about in a nutshell? Yeah. So um the last two years have been extremely painful for all of us throughout the world right i mean we've had the pandemic we've had a lot of economic uh, overturn we've had systemic racism all these various challenges and adversity in our lives um so my mother she had a saying which said that if you have not done something to improve a human's life in some way then you have not truly lived and she was an extremely empathic person and i was extremely um lucky to have her as a role model and this kind of motivation and driver was actually what made me understand that there is a lot of adversity in this world and so i started relating how I was facing a lot of stress and anxiety in my life and the things that the world is going through. And I felt, you know, uh, this is a good opportunity for me to give back, um, especially because the world's going through all this pain. And so that was a germination for this book. I want to stress upon the fact that you didn't need to have a permission or a title to help improve a human quality of life. What you really need is to perform actions to make things better and reduce that adversity. And that's the premise. That's the real premise of the book. Um, My mother, she passed in 2009 from cancer. And so this book is also an eulogy to her. I've included a lot of stories, uh, personal interactions, interviews. 
and other insights that she has um, given me um, over the course of my childhood. You know, that very much comes through. I mean, anybody who reads this book is going to understand <laughs> that this is a deep-seated passion of yours. And uh, I, I thought it was very commendable in that way. It's also kind of funny, just by chance, the other night I watched the movie Gandhi. I know that's Hollywood, but uh, that's also a life that's uh, being lived on, on behalf of others and trying to, uh, you know, uh, promote a, a, a very just cause. Um, so all just kind of came together, your book, the movie Gandhi, uh, and yes, a tremendous amount of suffering that's been going on in this world. There, there was a comment that really got my attention. It's from the director general, I guess, of the WHO. You said in the book that that person said the trauma of the pandemic has been greater than World War II. I mean, you want to go a little bit more into that? That's That's quite a strong comment. It is, and I'm I'm really happy that um, we are actually courageous to make these statements in public, right? I mean, especially because of the way in which social media uh, interacts with us and influences the way that people um, react. Um, So from a WHO perspective, the trauma, the adversity, the stress, and the pressure that has been put on healthcare and patients and people is... Um, un- unfounded. It's been really, really bad. I mean, we're talking of really, really huge numbers, right? But that's just scratching the surface from what I I feel. And, and this is something that I try to explore, that it's not just the healthcare side of things. It is the repercussions and the aftermath of all of this. Um, it's the economic inequality, the pain and the problem that patients and people face because they're not able to have the right amount of healthcare, the fear that they have actually going in. Um, not not trusting the vaccines and, you know, um, trying to insulate themselves from something really good um, due to a varied number of reasons is something that we talk about. Um, it's, it's also, I feel there are five different kinds of pandemics that are going on currently um, at this time. And that, in a nutshell, that was why I really included that quote. Um, the, the five ones is are you know the the global pandemic that's the first one we all know about it. Uh, the next one is racial injustice. I mean, healthcare by itself is a very noble cause, and it's it really is to help humanity improve. But then, because of the racial injustice, you have a disproportionate number of people who are suffering more than others. And that yes. is reflected because of the racial injustice and the systemic uh, racism that we have. And then you also have the economic instab- inequality and instability, which is the third pandemic. And that is because you have a lot of poorer population which are unable to break the glass ceiling and go and get better healthcare. They have to choose between uh, paying the heat or going um, to the hospital, which is a really, really big pain point. Um, the fourth one is anti-intellectualism, and we touch upon it a little bit. You have all these uh, deniers, anti-vaxxers, flat earthers, conspiration, uh, conspiracy theorists, and all these other people who are trying to fight the progress that is happening, especially in healthcare. Um, and you know, all the uh, and then finally you have this privilege and elitism. There are a lot of people, um, especially when the when when the uh, vaccinations started coming out. You had so many of these stories where people were jumping the line just because they could, and yes. get uh, vaccinated. So <clears throat> the, it, it really demonstrated that privilege and elitism and all these other things. So 
all that put together, it shows that we're suffering five different pandemics. It's not just one. And and there is that that's really, really traumatic. And these were not problems that we really faced a lot of um, during the Second World War. It's really, really amped up over the number of years. Yeah, no, and I could even add to that list, I mean, a slide away from democracy. And I think in honor of your mom, I mean, you mentioned racism, but also sexism, because you're pointing out these five traumas or six or whatever number we're going to end up with, they do often disproportionately fall on women as well. Yes, def- definitely, definitely. And and that, again, goes to the, the privilege and the elitism that, um, you know, we face over here. It's It's about time for us to really rethink and reimagine how we approach humanity overall. I mean, um, I, I was talking to a group of leaders about empathic leadership, and one of the things that I started, uh, I, I was stressing upon and underscoring was that for us as humanity, being humans is a huge challenge in the workforce. And that is such a paradox for us. We expect hum- humanism and we expect to be really human about things, but somehow in the workplace and in society in other places, our actions don't actually translate to demonstrate that humanity and that empathy. Oh, very much so. I mean, I, you mentioned the book that uh, empathetic leaders are unfortunately still in short supply. And you made this comment that often the the mindset is almost militaristic in nature, Right. Uh, and that really resonated with me in part because I remember being in academia and I went, my God, you, know, you think about this as being this place of uh, liberalism and free thinking. And yet you've got professor and associate professor and assistant professor. It's just like you've got lieutenant and colonel and sergeant right. and uh, it's something about human nature that loves ranks. But let, let's take on these these uh, that military mindset. What have you found in your work that's most likely to break through those people and and be transformative. So you you bring up a really good point because, you know, traditionally when one thinks of a leader, they think about being that stoic figure who doesn't show any emotions, who is yes. who doesn't talk much, right? I mean like they're uh, uh, Showing the strong, the, the, yeah, the, the strong silent type, so to speak. Yes, exactly. And showing showing the uh, emotion is cons- what has been considered, and it's still considered to this day, a sign of weakness. And uh, being empathic and being an empathic leader actually takes a lot of work. Um, you need to put yourself in someone else's shoes. You need to think about things from their perspective, and you need to try to actualize and make um, a, a concrete efforts to actually reduce their pain. And so it can be very taxing to people. Um, Also, organizational goals sometimes do not permit people to be empathic. And and that's a big challenge. Um, So if... Uh, so what I talk about and what, uh, what I try to drive, especially to embrace empathic leaders, is you don't have to go all out and, you know, be 100 percent. Um, transparent and vulnerable and show show you know your heart on your sleeve that's not what we talk of when we talk about being empathic uh, what we talk about is having the ability and using your current position and privilege and your interaction to create a safe space for others to experience their emotions and feelings completely being the support system when th- that they need and actively trying to reduce the pain that they're suffering 
that's what empathic le- em- empathy truly is. And that's what empathic leadership is all about, is creating that safe space and helping reduce the pain that other people are going through. And so in order to do that, um, the, the, there are five really simple ways that you can um, you can drive and become an empathic leader. The first one is to be vulnerable, but to be vulnerable with boundaries, right? You want to make sure that you have no egos. It's not about you. Um, it's about your teams. It's about the other people. Your success is actually measured as a derivative of other people's success. Um, and, and that is something that leaders, uh, especially emerging leaders, need to embrace. It's not about them. It's not about um, their ego, but it's about the teams and trying to help them improve. Uh, the, the next one is to be approachable. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed, and because of the pandemic and because of offices closing, a lot of um, leaders really suffer from this. It is those gemba walks or management by walking around. You learn so much. You interact with people. You put a face to a name. It's not an email address anymore or a phone number. You actually have human relations and, and uh, connections by talking to people, those hallway conversations and so on. So you you want to be more approachable it's hard in a digital world but there are so many ways that you can do it you can have um, open town halls you can have amas you can have the uh, virtual coffees with different people skip levels um, all those various things um, sure and before we jump into the other three how does this tie into something else i know that's really important to you and you make a lot of space in the book for children and how we're going to take care of them and and it's random acts of kindness that you're also advocating for is that part of approachable and vulnerable does that come with some of the other ones the other three that you're about to mention oh yeah definitely so uh, that's something um i have really learned a lot from my son my son is seven years old and he really is a kind person and i've learned a lot from him and children are such great teachers so One of the things that we are doing, um, especially during the lockdown and during virtual schooling, was we wanted to bring that emotional development and uh, supplement it with the distance school learning and all those other things that children were facing, right, at that time. So we introduced various experiments. It could be lean, it could be agile, DevOps, all those various things. But the basis was for um, the child to actually acknowledge their current state of mind and help them develop all these various skills, which is empathy, which is emotional intelligence, which is trying to understand. And random acts of kindness is something really, really helpful to do it. Um, So uh, one of the things that my son and I were doing this year, uh, starting from February, is that we're having a random acts of kindness challenge. So every we're having a journal of the random acts of kindness that he's going to perform and I'm going to perform as well. And we're going to socialize it on our website actually and share. And so he is being very conscious about being kind to people and helping. Um, So for example, what he did was he started this thing where a bunch of his friends go and help clean up the trash after the students have, uh, uh, eaten their lunch or had a sure. snack during recess. And he calls it the litter committee or litter meeting as he calls it. Um, and so he's trying to bring in that act of kindness, like, you know, trying to help or clean up. And it doesn't have to be your own mess. It could be others. And he's driving those things. 
Um, I am helping drive that and helping him perform much more of these because when you start driving empathy in children, it really elevates us as humans and we in turn start learning a lot from it. And that brings in much more vulnerability and being more approachable, um, being more appreciative and helpful because that's really what empathic leadership is all about. Sure. And you're, you're bonding across generations. You're preparing for the next generation. I mean, most leaders are quite possibly a full generation or more yep. older than the entry workers. Uh, I love this idea of the random acts of kindness challenge. I wonder if uh, executive teams shouldn't take on such a challenge and see who can uh, exceed each other. Um, so you, you mentioned two, vulnerable and being approachable. I didn't want to cut you off. So um, do you like to go into yeah. the other three briefly? Yeah, so the third one is to be attentive. Um, and, and this, I mean, full body listening, right? It's really hard for someone to approach you and ask for help and to confide in you. You want to keep that trust. You want to respect it. And you want to give them the full attention. It's really, really bad when someone comes in, they want to talk, but you are facing a different monitor or you're clacking away at a computer uh, doing something or maybe on your phone. That's very disrespectful. And so you need to be attentive. When you are inviting them in and you are creating that safe space, it is their safe space. And you have to be 100% um, dedicated to ensuring that safe space exists. Um, the, the fourth one is to be appreciative. Uh, uh, no one logs into work or comes to work thinking that they're going to do a bad day. Life happens. There will be a lot of events that occur. And uh, the last two years have been proof of that. Um, overnight, we have invited all our teams and all other people into our living rooms, our kitchens, our homes. You know, that yep. line has blurred. Um, so you want to understand and acknowledge that people are not just working from home. Um, and this is something I stress upon in the book. I say that what we're going through is existence from home because we have multiple streams of development and life happening around us. And that is something we want to acknowledge. And the sheer fact that people are coming in and trying to be productive and trying to meet their goals, their targets, their OKRs, whatever it is, you want to be appreciative of that. And you want to appreciate in public. You want to give feedback in private. And this is a, a time-tested management and leadership practice that many, many books talk about. But Yeah, and, and in fact, if I can jump in there. So it strikes me in what you're saying that, you know, you go back to Daniel Goleman's seminal book on EQ, 1996. Mm -hmm. There may be no moment more pertinent to empathy and EQ than right now, given that blurring of the lines, as you said. And, and these, you know, five, six traumas that have been going on for us. Is, is that not true? I mean, I'm thinking of the great oh, no. re resignation, for instance, where people are thinking about, you know, their mission in life, their value system. Does it comport with what the company is trying to accomplish with its mission? It just yeah. seems like there's so much throw weight of what's going down right now. It, to it totally is. So um, um, if I remember correctly, Daniel Goldman, he talked about self-awareness, um, self-regulation, motivation, social skills, and empathy, right, as the most important drivers for emotional intelligence and that leaders have to drive it. What I like to do is also add on this other book by Daniel Pink, um, Drive, where he talks about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. 
you want to give these three things to the workforce and you want to give it to people so that they feel that they're part of something bigger. They, they're not just doing it for the money. No one is doing it for the money anymore. You want to be part of something bigger. You want to leave an impact on this world. And so I add a fourth one to what Daniel Pink talks about, and it is reputation. You want people want to be recognized. They want to be appreciated because they are going above and beyond to do it. And that's one of the one of the challenges that we are facing. That's driving this big um, resignation. The lack of empathy or the limited amount of demonstration of empathy within the workforce and as part of the organizational culture is one, is one of the reasons why we are having this talent drain, this attrition or the resignation. And I look at it as, as, uh, as uh, a problem with the way we approach empathy, because empathy is such a broad umbrella term, right? It, it covers so many things. But in reality, when you, when you distill it, there are actually three types of empathy. The first one is cognitive empathy, where you are putting yourself in someone else's shoes, that your point of view, and trying to imagine what they would feel. It's a very rational response. And, you know, people like uh, sales executives or negotiators, they're the ones who really use this uh, cognitive empathy. Then you have emotional empathy, which is what generally we consider empathy as, which is having that emotional connection between humans and feeling the pain of the other person. And the third one is compassionate empathy, which is not just having that emotional connection, but actually doing something. So you're, it is effective. You are performing an action to improve the, the and reduce the pain that someone else is going through. Now, there is... a disconnect between how people are interpreting empathy. The workforce, um, uh, the line workers, uh, all the people within the organizations, when they think of empathy, they're thinking compassionate empathy. They want people to do something (laughs) about the pain. But from a leadership perspective and from all the management styles and all the other things, we we have been it has been drilled into us that you know cognitive empathy is essential for empathic leadership so there is a disconnect there people start losing trust there is friction and so people feel the culture is not really supporting them and so that is driving a lot of this um, greater resignation people are not feeling happy that their culture is supporting what they want and i think acknowledging that and really uh, taking actions to reduce the pain uh, of the workforce is essential. And that, that's why I'm so passionate about talking with them. My motto is transform with empathy. And in day, day in and day out, what I do is I partner with executives and try to help them understand that people are the true value creators within the organization. It's not technology. Technology is only an enabler. Um, you want to invest in people and culture. And so 2022, it's all going to be about people and culture in my mind. Oh, no, I, I absolutely love where you took the last few minutes here. Uh, I've never heard anyone quite articulate that way too often uh, executives end up with just cognitive empathy. Um, it made me, I'll go back to the movie Gandhi for a moment, you know, the British officers trying to figure out how to deal with the insurrection and they're trying to understand Gandhi's point of view and the Indians right. point of view, but they can barely get there at all. It's certainly not emotional and it's absolutely not compassionate. Yep. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a three dimensional chess game in which they're on one dimension. 
It is. It, it totally is. And then add to that the other complexity of people confusing empathy versus sympathy, right? That's that's yes. the thing. And um, it, it, I, use, I use a visual analogy to explain the difference between these two, um, especially with the recent event that occurred. So for, when I talk about sympathy, I, I say that um, sympathy is like being on the International Space Station and and <laughs> the Tonga volcanic explosion, right? From the yeah. station and feeling sad about the inhabitants there. That is sympathy. But flying to Tonga and actually helping with the humanitarian efforts, that's empathy in my mind. There's, there's a lot of difference there. And I think that visual analogy really does connect because everyone's seen that video of the horrific explosion of the Tonga volcano. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great analogy. I'm very visually oriented, so um, I, I, I like that a lot. So staying with these leaders who often are stuck in the cognitive version of empathy and have a militaristic mindset at times, certainly not all of them, but maybe more than we might hope for. You mentioned recognizing one's own limiting beliefs. What do you think are a few of those limiting beliefs of executives? And maybe in your own journey, uh, what have been some limiting beliefs you've you've grown up through and beyond? That is a great question, and there are so many limiting beliefs. Um, I'm going to start with a simple one, right? Um, especially in a bureaucratic organization and a toxic organization, um, especially leaders who are struggling to be there, demonstrating empathy could be challenging. So the first over, uh, first limiting belief would be, I cannot be em- empathic or the system won't allow me to be empathic. That is the first limiting belief. And so you want to deconstruct that and you want to eliminate the fact that there are actually shackles. The reason why people think that they cannot be empathic is because they fear um, trying to be vulnerable and trying to share. So rather than being a big bang and immediately uh, taking a big bang approach and immediately converting everything uh, and saying, I'm swinging the pendulum the other way, I'm going to completely be open and transparent and say whatever uh, comes to my mind. That's not really being transparent. What we want to do is break it down, really synthesize what we want to accomplish out of it. Why is empathy necessary within your organization? When you come to the crux of why it is necessary, then the next step would be to actually think about what we can do to um, champion empathy or promote empathy. We can start really small, and I've given a couple of examples in the book um, around crowdsourcing empathy. Uh, You, by championing empathy, are actually being much more empathic than you give yourself credit for. So champion it. Do these random acts of kindness. That's why it's so powerful. You can do something really, really small. And in addition to this, and this is uh, something that I'm actually going to talk with um, some masters and uh, undergrad students here, is crowdsourcing empathy and using it as the driver or or the engine for innovation. Yes. Empathy is all about reducing the pain of other people. And within an organization, frustration and pain is what creates innovation and creativity. 
And so why not merge the two of them, identify things that people are suffering from, and then use them together to become much more empathic and make empathy part of the core tenet of your arc. Um, so a sto- uh, example that I give is we had this thing called Project Athena within one of our organizations where the goal was to actually identify problems that were hurting people. Um, it was something really simple. It was like a report that had to be generated, which would at the end of the day, and it was preventing people from going home early. And this was when people were actually in the office, right? So that was a pain. Innovate that, try to reduce that pain. It reduces the friction. It allows the people to actually spend more time with that family. Their work-life balance increases. It becomes that uh, juggernaut of productivity and innovation. And so... That is something that you can do simple. And so in the book, what I say is transform your limiting belief into a motivator, which says that if you have a particular statement and says, I cannot be empathic, or or you say something like, uh, I am not empathic enough, you can change that to, I am not empathic enough yet. And then sure. identify and break down goals and approaches on how you can actually introduce that empathy. You yeah, know, I like I like the Project Athena thing a lot. I, I put a, a little you know star right by that part of the book because I, I love the example and you, you got real results from it. One last thing before you run out of time, you um, move at one point to talking about town halls because if you're going to be vulnerable, I can imagine a lot of leaders are like, "Oh my God, I'm going to stir the pot if I allow people to actually have a large scale dialogue." But you have some ideas on how to make this this thing work uh, if you open it up. Can you just talk to me and to the listeners a bit on on the town hall format and what's possible there? Yeah, yeah, and and um, I'm I'm sure this is a common fear of a lot of people, right? Especially when you're thinking of asynchronous communication, like um, having digi- virtual town halls right now, or ask me anything. Uh, being vulnerable, but again, having boundaries about our over vulnerability is what empathic leaders need to practice it's really hard but you get it by um, learning you get it by embracing failure you're going to fail a number of times but but that's okay what um, one of the things that you can do is when you have a town hall ideally you want to start off with the purpose or the why we are having some particular thing so i give the example of uh digital transformation for example because that's kind of what i do on a day-to-day basis when leaders are talking about digital transformation the first thing on the top of their mind uh, or mind is why the company needs to do this digital transformation but that's all okay because it sounds really good on posters, it, good, it looks good in media releases and press releases and on blogs. But what does that mean to the workforce? What does it mean to their day-to-day life? Try to boil it down and put it in from their point of view and try to make them understand why it is necessary is the first step. So when, you're, when they're asking questions, you always want to understand and put yourself in their shoes and think about why are they asking this question? What is the, what is the thing behind it that they're trying to get to? What are they afraid of? What are their fears? Are they feeling that you know the change is going to be uncomfortable to everyone? And we yes. need to embrace that. And we need to ensure that you know they should be comfortable with failure. They should be comfortable with the change promoting that psychological safety within 
your organization is most important and that's where the town halls and AMS are so important. It shows you as a human and if you can openly admit to some of the failures and you embrace failures and you celebrate it, you're sending a signal to the entire organization and telling them that, hey, this leader is okay to fail. It's fine for us to experiment and fail as well. And that's what starts the engine going. That's what makes innovation much better. People start taking risks. They feel much more trust, uh, trustful of the management. They know that they've got their backs. And so there are some other tips that I go into in the book, but these are some of the things. Psychological safety, improving trust, embracing failures are the most important things in order to um, help improve the conversation within your organization. No, no, I, I love that. Uh, I, and I love your, your your passion that you brought to this topic. It's completely evident and uh very authentic. So I, I want to thank you, Gotham. This time is probably about up. Uh, you've been my guest here on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 96, uh, Tackling Adversity Through Empathy. My guest, Gotham Pelope. He is the author of Leading with Empathy, Understanding the Needs of Today's Workforce. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network, type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight and you'll find the other episodes. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an epigram. Never done this before, but this time I took one from your own book, Gotham, because I really like the one from Albert Einstein and it fits one of the three essentials that you just mentioned uh, because his quote is, failure is success in progress. Until next time, take care and be well. 